You are listening to the Hevein Podcast, where scholarly research into the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East is brought directly to you. Well, welcome back to the Hebein Podcast. I, of course, am Dr. Josh, and I am very excited to have with me today Dr. John J. Collins, the Holmes Professor of Old Testament Criticism and Interpretation at uh, Yale Divinity School. And Dr. Collins earned his PhD from Harvard University, and before coming to Yale, he held faculty positions at many prestigious universities, including the University of Chicago and Notre Dame. Among the various areas of specialization that Dr. Collins has become well-known for, um, for example, his work on the Book of Daniel, Apocalyptic Literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls, he has recently published a book entitled, What Are Biblical Values? What the Bible Says on Key Ethical Issues. The link to the book is in the description below, and I highly recommend that you purchase and read it. It's a clear and balanced approach, I believe, to the moral difficulties that we see in the biblical text. But today we're focusing in on some of these moral issues that appear in the Hebrew Bible, particularly with respect to issues of violence and genocide as depicted in the Old Testament. We'll also discuss passages that come up in discussions on abortion, social justice, and even slavery. So, Dr. Collins, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I am sure that almost everyone watching knows who you are, but would you like to take a couple of minutes and introduce yourself to the audience? You've done enough. I've done it? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Let's get into the substance. The first question that I wanted to ask is there is a common notion um, that the ancient world was an immoral place and that the Old Testament greatly developed morality and ethics. In your book, you address many of the values that are presented in the biblical texts. Would you take a minute and generally speak to this idea and how we should understand, in general, uh, morality in the ancient world and more specifically in the biblical texts? I don't know that uh, the ancient world was any more immoral in its way than the modern world. You know, I see you have the Ishtar Gate displayed there behind you. You use the... the uh, codename Digital Hammurabi. Um, You know, uh, there's a very good book by David Wright, who teaches at Brandeis, on the inventing God's law, arguing that a core section of the law in the Pentateuch was adapted from the Code of Hammurabi. Now, this is controversial. It may may or may not be right. I found it fairly persuasive. But I think, you know, at the beginning of the Code of Hammurabi, uh, you have the, the statement that he was called to administer justice. And what that meant was so that the rich would not oppress the poor. Basically, that was it. Everybody in the ancient world paid lip service to it. Now, whether they did it is another matter, but, you know, do they do it nowadays? Mm. We all pay lip service to it nowadays, too. So... Uh, there's a very good book also by a man named Jeremiah Unterman called And Justice for All, uh, making the case you know, that the Hebrew Bible stands out in that respect, in the, the clarity and insistence of its call for social justice, especially. And I think that's true, you know, um, that there is better literature out there in many respects. 
you know, I think maybe the Greek tragedians had more insight into human nature in some ways. Uh, the philosophers certainly did in some ways. Nobody had that straightforward, insistent call for justice that you get in the Hebrew prophets. So that, to my mind, you know, is what makes the Hebrew Bible still worth reading. Mm. Now, does that mean that they were all on a superior level? Uh, unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. Uh, and you mentioned in your remarks at the beginning, I think, the, the question of violence. And that is one of the areas, you know, it's one of the areas, not the only one, mm. by any means, where the Bible maybe rises sometimes a little bit above its environment and sometimes doesn't rise above it at all. You know, one of the things that I think about when I think about um, social justice and aspects of um, those, you know, that, that type of elevation is that where we see it, and you mentioned it, you know, in the prophets, the prophets, you know, calling for this, um, you know, equity. So I think of Jeremiah 34 and, you know, calling for the freedom of the slaves. And and it's interesting, you know, if you read through, you know, Akkadian proverbial text, you'll see sometimes, it's not often, at least not to my knowledge, you'll see, uh, you know, don't uh, you know, ch- treat your enemy well and do do well to those that it's, it's, it's very golden rule-ish. Yeah. Um, for the for the gods love this, you know. For Shamash loves this, yeah. but but when you when you look at the legal texts, it's exactly as you say. And I think I think even so, in the Hebrew Bible, it's there's this, um, uh, you know, look out for the orphan, look out for the widow, look out for the oppressed. But when you get to the prophets, I think you're absolutely right. It it really does seem to be much clearer. It comes on, and it's much more frequent. Hmm. You know, and you get it in some of the law books too, Deuteronomy. Uh, you know, Deuteronomy is this great schizophrenic book where, where you have some wonderful stuff on justice. And then you also have the command to slaughter the Canaanites. Yeah. You know, the, the philosopher Walter Benjamin said there is no great monument of civilization, but isn't also a monument of barbarism. Mm. I think that that holds true, and it holds true of the Bible as well. Yeah. You know, that's just power to the human condition. Well, that sort of leads us into the second question. So one of the issues that we encounter, particularly here on social media, is the problem of violence in the Hebrew Bible. The God of the Old Testament appears to either command or perform violent actions that we would consider today to be immoral. A common apologetic to this charge of immorality is to say that these stories of violence or genocide were merely hyperbolic. Could you speak to the violence either committed or commanded by God in the Hebrew Bible and how it should be understood in its context? Were these merely hyperbolic uh, statements or does the narrative expect the reader to understand that these commands of violence and genocide were genuine and from God? Uh, You know, it is, I suppose, uh, a complex question in its way. It is very, first of all, uh, I mean, it is not the case that God came down and told them to do these things. You know, when you get a divine command in the Bible, it is some human being telling you that this is what God commands. And whenever you get that, ancient or modern, it's always at the very least mixed in with human motivations, human interests, and sometimes entirely 
the product of human motivations and human interests. Now, the, the short piece example, you see, is the conquest story. Now, the conquest story, if you read through beginning with Deuteronomy, with the command that when you go into the land, you know, leave no one alive, practically. And then the book of Joshua gives you the impression that Joshua actually did that. Now, the book of Judges, as I'm sure you know, is much more ambivalent about it. It gives you long lists of people that they didn't destroy, but it blames them for not destroying them. Now, the, the modern consensus, for what it's worth, is that the violent conquest of Canaan didn't occur. Now, the main argument on that is archaeological. We would expect to find, you know, a whole series of places that had been destroyed at the appropriate time, beginning with Jericho, the showpiece. Mm. And as of now, the archaeologists do not find these. I think there are an archaeologist or two, maybe, who still think Hatzor may have been destroyed destroyed by the Israelites, but the majority view, uh, Bill Deaver, you know, is probably the most forceful and articulate archaeologist of his generation, was also very much opposed, you know, to the minimalists, to the people mm -hmm. who wanted to deny the historicity of a lot of the Old Testament. But at the same time, he says, you know, these things just didn't happen. Uh, now, does that relieve the problem? You see, I think not. Maybe it makes us feel a little bit less squeamish if we don't have to imagine that they actually pulled Canaanite women out of bed and slaughtered them. Uh, but still, it's there in the text, presented as a divine command. And then, you see, it stands as, uh, as a paradigm. The danger of putting things in writing, as we all know all too well, is that people will make of them of what you have written what they will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, in this case, you see, it isn't really difficult to use those texts as a kind of license for violence. And this has happened repeatedly. You know, it happened in the uh, the spread of... Christianity in this country. It uh, has happened in South Africa. It's happened in happening in modern Israel. Um, so you know the, those texts are not innocent that way. Is it just hyperbole? I think not. Um, you know, there's a, a philosopher, um, Nick. Um, Blanking on his name, who <laughs> wrote uh, a book on Nick Walterstorff, uh, who has a you know makes a nice argument saying how he talked to the, this high school kid who had played a football game and he said, Oh, we slaughtered them. To which I say, Nice try, Nick. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, granted, it was hyperbolic. And you know, you've studied uh, the Assyriological stuff. They were all hyperbolic. Mm. But to say that they were hyperbolic didn't mean they didn't kill people. Mm. You know, they did what they could and claimed to have done more. Mm. But what you get fairly consistently is the glorification and violence. Now, I mean, this isn't peculiar to the ancient world either. 
This is, uh, you know, uh, think, think of the Western, the movie genre. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you ultimately settle things by violence? That's deeply ingrained. And we just did this past week. What should you do if there are demonstrations getting out of hand? Send in the army. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not the same syndrome. It seems to me. Now, you know, there are exceptions to that in the Bible. Uh, that's the remarkable part. A famous one would be the suffering servant in Isaiah of um, an attempt to make, uh, make suffering redemptive, which then had huge influence in early Christianity. But mind you, early Christianity doesn't altogether dispense with the violence either, uh, because in the end, you end up with the book of Revelation. And Jesus may have been a nice guy the first time, but boy, don't get in his way when he comes back. I'm speaking with Dr. John J. Collins of Yale Divinity School about the topic of violence in the Old Testament and other ethical problems that are found in the Hebrew Bible. We will continue our conversation after this short break. Stay tuned. Thousands of years ago, an ancient civilization made unprecedented technological advancements. The mysteries of this civilization can be found in their writings, buried away for thousands of years. Scholars have deciphered these ancient tablets, and now you can too. Learn to Read Ancient Sumerian, an introduction for complete beginners, is your guide to reading these writings from the ancient past. Get your copy today and begin reading this long-lost language tomorrow. We are back with Dr. Collins discussing the violence described in the Bible that will ultimately come from the hand of Jesus himself. Now, you know, one of the intriguing questions to me uh, is in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, is that premised on the belief that God will come back and destroy the wicked for you? I think if you read it in its canonical context, that's certainly how it's put. Mm. You know, we can afford to let the wheat and the tares grow together until the fall, and then the harvest will come, and the tares will be thrown into the fire. And now, whether that's what Jesus meant, that's that's an area I'm very hesitant to go into. Uh, <clears throat> very, very difficult to to pin that down. Mm. But I think you know it's a possibility. I'm not sure it's right, but I think it is a possibility. And I I, I want to ask you. You know, before we move on to the next question, uh, thinking about because th- this aspect of hyperbole, it ends up being like, you know, Lawson Younger writes his dissertation in 1990, I think. The book gets published in the JSOT series. And, you know, he's comparing the Assyrian um, and, you know, the Egyptian inscriptions and saying, well, look, this is war rhetoric, right? This is hyperbole. And so when you look at Joshua, what, 9 to 12? That's what this is. And, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that to a certain degree. I think there probably are some parallels. I don't know what I think about taking these individual syntams and trying to figure out, you know, are there parallels? I think that can be dangerous. But nonetheless, I, there probably is something there. But what I, what I suspect is that you end up like a kid with a hammer, 
right? Everything becomes a nail. So if you've got this idea that, oh, hyperbole here in Joshua 9 to 12, well, anywhere I see violence and I can use hyperbole to get out of it, I'll do it. So when you, know, when you come to a passage like 1 Samuel 15 with the Amalekites, boom, that, that hyperbole. But the problem is, and, and even, in, in, you know, even in the conquest account, when you look at the, you know, I mean, you obviously you know this far better than I do, but you you look at the use of haram or harem and and the, this ban language, and you look at a place like Jericho. Jericho is the point is that nobody's left, right? Rahab and her family—that's the exception. Um, and so this idea of there being everything's gone except for this, or everything is wiped out except for this, and certainly in First Samuel fifteen, I mean, Saul is. He's condemned. He's rejected ultimately because of this. And Samuel has to go take up a, you know, a dagger and kill the king. But it's because he didn't carry this out. So like, what are your thoughts on that type of broad application of, of hyperbole? Or, or do you think there's anything to it? And if so, what do you think the limits are to its use? Well, uh, you see, hyperbole, uh, in order to have hyperbole, you have to have something to hyperbolize if you know what I mean. Mm. And as you know well, in the case of the Assyrians, they were hyperbolic. Sure. Does that mean they didn't kill anybody? Right. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Now, they probably killed a lot more people than Joshua did. Maybe the whole story of Joshua is fiction, but nonetheless, you know, it holds up an ideal. That's the mm. problem. Yeah. And if Joshua didn't do it, there have been plenty of other people who did. Mm. So now I might add, I'm not a pacifist, really. I think there are there are times when violence may be the best of a bad selection. Mm. I don't think it's ever a good thing. It's yeah. uh, you know it, it, it's last recourse. Uh, the now, the saving grace, if you like, of the, the Hebrew Bible is that most of the time they didn't have the power to kill anybody. And for the whole second temple period, you see, they were very weak people. It's only when the Maccabees come along, mm. and when they do, they look back to Phineas, to the zeal of Phineas, to get your spear and run people through. Well, now, uh, I think, you know, in their time, I don't really have a quarrel with the Maccabees. Uh, they may have gotten carried away some of the time, but... Uh, in their context, I don't think they were shining moral examples, but they weren't uh, they, they weren't scandalous either. Mm. They were more or less normal mm. in that regard. And I have a certain amount of sympathy for the zealots, you know, who rose up against Rome. It's ambivalent, of course, because in that case the results were disastrous. Mm. But still. Uh, what happens much more typically in the later part of the Hebrew Bible is that the violence gets attributed to God. Mm. And now that has had a long history of effects uh, in Christianity, especially. Again, Judaism until very recently didn't have the power. But I think, you know, it's not that some people are better than others, really, that uh, people who have power over others tend to use it. And I think this has happened in uh, in modern Israel, and it's often happened in Christianity. Hmm. 
certainly. And you see, that's the danger to my mind of having a sacred text that glorifies this kind of thing. Even if you're saying that it's God who will stamp on the nations like somebody stamps on a wine press. Because then what do you do with it? Hmm. Now, as you will probably be aware, I am Irish. Uh, Irish history looms large in my consciousness. I wasn't in, I've never lived in Northern Ireland, and I certainly wasn't there during the Troubles, but I was very much aware of what was going on there. And one of the things that was going on there was that there was a fundamentalist preacher named Ian Paisley, who, you know, would thunder from the heavens about how God was going to smite these people and so forth. Now, he could say that he never told anybody to go out and kill anyone. Whether anybody then did act because of his sermons, you would have difficulty proving, but it's hard not to suspect that he did. Yeah. You know, we had a, a case like that in this country a few years ago of uh, a certain politician using ads, putting targets on the back of people. And then some person of the opposing party was, in fact, shot. Was there culpability there? Now, of course, you can prove that the person who pulled the trigger looked at that. But it's hard to imagine that these things are not, in the end, interconnected. Yeah. You know, words have, have force. Words have meaning and have effects. So that's, I think, the, the, the moral problem there. Now, you know, it seems to me, I mean, one way of reading the New Testament part of it, and uh, I, you know, I've toyed with this, I'm not really a New Testament scholar and uh, I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to take too strong a stand on it. But, you know, as you have it in the Gospels, you have a lot of apocalyptic imagery. And then you also have some very non-apocalyptic sounding stuff, like turn the other cheek, very atypical of, uh, of that kind of discourse. And it seems to me that what somebody did, whether it was Jesus or the evangelists, is to use the, the, to, to use the expectation of divine intervention to say you don't need to do anything in the present. To, to make that uh, a support for tolerance and forbearance. Mm. Now, there's some connection. You get some of that in the Jewish apocalypses. In the book of Daniel, I think the expectation of divine intervention is a reason why you can then afford to let yourself get killed. Mm -hmm. But I think the Gospels go a step beyond that because you know, they, they actually uh, advocate tolerance. And tolerance is a very unapocalyptic virtue. This is one of the interesting things that I see um, just before we move uh, on to the next question, um, is this idea that when you have a mindset that says, I am wholly right and the other is wholly wrong. You mentioned this in the book. How is it that you put it? it when you're right and they're wrong, that leaves no room for negotiation, which is violence is then the only thing that's left. So it's uh, it, it can be a dangerous. It's, it's not only in religion, you know. It's in politics as well. Because this is why I can never um, abide it. 
when people say, we do not talk to terrorists. If you don't talk to them, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the only rational thing to do with terrorists is talk to them. You know, try, try to make contact. Try to provide them with some other way of behaving besides, mm. besides going that way. But, you know, what we too often end up with is kind of terrorism on both sides. Yeah. Very interesting book. I don't know if you're familiar with Bruce Lincoln, who was a colleague of mine at the University of Chicago, a historian of religion. And he wrote a book on the rhetoric of George W. Bush and Osama bin Laden. Hmm. And uh, the, the symmetry between them. Wow. <laughs> the wow. similarity. And mind you, we have heard much more extreme politicians than George W. Bush. I'm speaking with Dr. John Collins of Yale Divinity School about violence in the Bible. And when we come back, we'll talk about what else you can find in his recent book on biblical values, including discussions on abortion, homosexuality, and slavery. You don't want to miss it. You know, a lot of people wonder why we provide all of our online language materials free of charge. We offer courses in ancient Sumerian, biblical Hebrew, and even ancient Egyptian on our YouTube channel, Digital Hammurabi, all freely available to you. The reason is pretty simple. We think it's important, and we want to help. We also offer a wide variety of resources on the ancient Near East and the Hebrew Bible, including videos on introductory or even debated topics. If you would like to help us keep these materials free for everyone, why not consider becoming a patron of the channel? You can find us at patreon.com slash digital Hammurabi. That's digital H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I. We're back with Dr. John Collins discussing his book, What Are Biblical Values? What the Bible Says on Key Ethical Issues. We've talked about violence, and that's really the big thing that I wanted to talk about. But I, I, I want to give everybody, again, a bit of a teaser. What else is in this book? I'm often asked about passages like Numbers 5 and Exodus 21, 22 to 25, and how they relate to the issue of abortion. So if you, this book goes into a lot of different um, issues that are very relevant today and you know what, what we do with the things that the biblical texts say about them. So... Could you give us a brief summary of these two passages, as brief as you like, and what bearing they might have on the abortion discussion? The one in Exodus 21 is the text that has traditionally been used as the the proof text for debates about abortion. And it doesn't actually talk about abortion at all. Hmm. It posits a case where two men are fighting and incidentally a woman is hit and she is pregnant and she loses the child. This is not abortion. Now, the way they, it treats of it then is, you know, what kind of compensation is due? So it isn't even re- really dealing with it as a moral issue. Now, it becomes, um, that becomes the, the go-to text, in large part because of the way it was translated into Greek. Because there's one difficult Hebrew word in it. It's the word for har, mason. And this got translated into Greek if the baby comes out not fully formed. And that became 
than the point on which the arguments hung. And in Jewish tradition, for a lot of the way, uh, I'm not sure, again, I don't know that there is one Jewish position on anything, uh, but certainly for a lot of the tradition, the position was that you could not have an abortion if the crown of the head had appeared. Now, so the, the point there was whether the fetus was fully formed. Now, these are very complex issues in a modern context. But the, the striking thing is I wasn't really aware of this when I started working on it, mm. uh, that the Bible never says anything about abortion. Mm. The other text you mentioned in Numbers 5 is, if you suspect a woman of adultery, give her a hideous mixture to drink of mixing clay and water, and uh, if it causes her to swell up, then she was guilty. Now, apparently what's going on there is that it would cause a miscarriage. Mm. You know, the, the only way it wouldn't was if she hadn't conceived a child at all. Right. <laughs> but, but again, now, if that is the case, then, then it would seem to be approving of abortion, mm. in fact, approving of causing a miscarriage in a case of adultery. But it doesn't actually come out and say that. Right. And to me, the striking thing is that it never addresses that question. Now, the only people I think who had a law against us were your good friends, the Assyrians. Mm. And it wasn't, you would say, because of their great humaneness for the most part. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people in the ancient world viewed this more as a matter of property rights. Sure. And it wasn't so much the rights that there was no concept of a right to life. For that of it, there wasn't really a concept of rights as such. You know, when you talk about rights, this is anthropocentric. It is, we have human rights because we are human beings. That's the idea. In the ancient world, for the Assyrians as well as for the Hebrews, it's what the gods say. Yeah. So it's theocentric. Now, uh, again, we mentioned Nick Walterstaff already, and he makes a, a valiant effort to say that if God forbids you to do something to a person, then that person has a right for you not to do it to him. <laughs> but I think, again, it's a nice try, but you know, this just isn't the way they think about it yeah. in the context of the Bible. So, uh, now, what, what would you conclude from this? Um, now, you see, I, I think it's really inconclusive. It is not the case, and I'm by no means suggesting that the Bible is saying abortion is okay. Hmm. It just doesn't say anything about it. Hmm. We do know that by the time you get down into the Hellenistic period, uh, Jews had a reputation that they were exceptional in the ancient world for not exposing infants. Mm. Now, exposing infants is different from abortion. You know, to expose an infant, the infant has to be born first. So this is the, there's a whole difference of degree there. Mm. But you can see if if you wanted, if I wanted to make an argument against abortion, it's 
the concern for vulnerable life would be the argument to make. Hmm. But on the other hand, this is not an argument that the, that the Bible makes with regard to the unborn. And to my mind, then, that throws this, you know, there is no divine command on this hmm. that one could possibly construe as such. And that means then it's a matter of negotiation and that society has to figure that out and people have a right to argue for whichever side they, they want to. But in the end, it, it is a matter for a human decision. And I think there's there's so much of this that we, looking at it through, obviously, our modern lens, doesn't make sense to us. So slavery, as we see it, um, I wrote a book recently, a popular level book on slavery uh, in the ancient Near East and the Hebrew Bible. And one of the things that I, I see people wrestling with is that we know slavery is immoral. Like we, we know that. And so when we see it in the Hebrew Bible, if it's uh, or in the ancient Near East, if it's being uh, either um, endorsed or in places condoned, whatever, it, whatever word that we want to use, um, that it's being treated there as a moral issue. And I think that that's difficult um, to try to wrap our heads around that uh, slavery is not, it's, it's, it's being looked at in a different way. So if I could, um, because you, you do have a chapter on slavery as well, just for everybody, uh, go buy the book. It's amazing. Another hot button issue with respect to the morality of the Hebrew Bible is the issue of slavery. It is often argued on social media that the slavery in the ancient world was indeed awful, but not in the Hebrew Bible. It is argued that slavery in the Hebrew Bible was simply akin to owning a credit card or having a job um, or perhaps being owned by a sports franchise. Is this how we should understand slavery in the Hebrew Bible? Well, uh, to my mind, you know, the essence of slavery is that one person is owned by somebody else. Now, even those poor slaves, you know, who work in the NFL or the NBA, uh, well, they, they get a little better remuneration I think, than most slaves would have gotten in the ancient world. <laughs> and for that, there is really nothing to prevent them from picking up their gear and quitting. Yeah. Is what you could not do if you were a slave. How bad, in fact, was it? You know, we don't really know. We don't have very good data. Now, what we do have, there's a, a moving passage in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, when people go to Nehemiah and say, look, we're having to sell our children to pay the king's tax or to pay whatever tax. Now, it, that hurts. It doesn't matter whether the person you sell the child to is benign or not. Mm. And, you know, we don't have a lot of, of evidence of the abuse of slaves. But, you see, we don't really know what would have counted as the abuse of slaves. Mm. In the book of Proverbs, they'll tell you to beat your slave. Ben Sirah tells you, beat your slave. Otherwise, you know, he's not going to respect you. Mm. In effect, they kind of treated slaves the way they treated their animals. Now, I'm sure there were some people who were decent human beings and relatively kindly. There must have been some of those even in the American South. Mm. But now, 
we don't have the data, you know, to do an index of comparative misery. Uh, one of the times I taught this course at Yale Divinity School, there was an African-American gentleman in the class who was a bit older than most of the students. He was very good, very thoughtful. But he could not accept that what you have in the Bible was slavery. Hmm. And that's because, you know, the Bible was a treasured book. And if he accepted that it did condone slavery, this was a big problem for him. And there was an African-American woman in the class who I think explained things to him very nicely and said, mm. you know, yeah, I see where you're coming from, but nonetheless, you got to look and see what the facts are here. Um, so, you know, granted that we don't really know how this treated them most of the time, what we do know is they could buy them and sell them. Mm. And that is degrading. That's yeah. degrading. That's worse than beating. So uh, why did I put in that chapter? As people, as several people have asked me. I put it in because I take it that is a case where no right-minded person will now read it and say, and the Bible was right. Mm. I think the, the other case where few people would want to take that stand would be with regard to women. Mm. For example, when you have in the pastoral epistles, I will not allow a woman to teach or have authority over men. Yep. I think you won't get many people who would actually stand up and say, I agree with that. Uh, now, I suspect there may be more people who actually think that in the case of women. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody in the modern world could conceivably, I think, get up and say slavery was a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, you see, they didn't see the problem, which is remarkable to us, given the whole Exodus story. But you see, it, people, you don't see things that everybody takes for granted. And we, we don't know now, you know, what our blind spots are, that will be glaringly obvious to people a hundred years from now. Yeah. But we can easily look back. We had a, a portrait on the walls of Yale Divinity School for a time of a man named Moses Stewart, who was one of the first prominent American biblical scholars. And he said, when he was asked, uh, the Bible does not condemn slavery. Hmm. This was at the time of the Civil War. But he was right. Mm -hmm. You see, I mean, where he would have been wrong, and I'm not sure whether he did, but whether he drew the conclusion or not, but it would have been wrong to say, and therefore it's okay. Yeah. So that, to my mind, is the reason for including the chapter on slavery, which in many ways is anachronistic, in some ways perhaps not mm. so anachronistic, yeah. because it has its analogs. Still, because, you know, people are, uh, I mean, I think you could probably document some of this now with the COVID-19 crisis, you know, of the people who are not at liberty to shelter at home. And why is that? You know, I'm not saying any of these are simple issues, but, but they're, not, uh, they're not black and white.
Oh, Dr. Collins, this has been an incredibly thought-provoking conversation, and I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and discuss these complex issues with us. If you'd like to get your own copy of Dr. Collins' recent book, What Are Biblical Values? What the Bible Says on Key Ethical Issues, you can find the link in the description, or you can go to Yale University Press's website uh, or even Amazon.com. For more content on the Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Digital Hammurabi. That's digital H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I. Or you can follow us on Twitter at DJ Hammurabi1 and at Digi, D-I-G-I underscore Hammurabi. As always, thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to having you back here on the Hebane Podcast.